This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. U.S. Steel has been given a four-month extension of its creditor protection. Uh, this uh, is actually, I think, a, a good news story. Well, at least we hope it is anyway, because it gives these guys more time to try to work out some of the details, outstanding details that uh, need to be worked out uh, for Bedrock to take over and hopefully for this company to be viable once again. Gary Howes, the president of USW Local 1005 here in Hamilton, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update. How are you doing this morning, Gary? Good, thanks, Bill. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about where you guys are in here. First of all, uh, I, I mentioned that the extensions are probably a good idea and good news at this stage because at least it gives you more time to, to try to iron some things out. Yeah, well, well actually, whatever's usually recommended, well, always whatever's recommended by the monitor gets approved by the judge. So the monitor recommended it uh, stay gets extended till the end of March of 217. So the only ones in court that opposed that were U.S. Steel lawyers saying that, um, you know, they thought it would be better that there was a shorter stay. But the judge, uh, the judge granted it till the end of March. So where are you in the, in these discussions? Now I, we we know the story from about a week or week and a half or so ago. Uh, we had Bill Ferguson, on, of course, uh, your compatriot from uh, from the Lake Erie Works, and he was, was talking about the letter that he signed uh, that that said, "Yeah, we need some positive momentum here." But he had some very outstanding issues that said still needed to be resolved. You haven't signed any letter yet. What's holding that up? Well, our demographics are are different than than the lakes. Like we have all the the pensioners, uh, so we have nine thousand pensioners and five hundred people working, and the salary group has has uh, you know like quite a few pensioners as well from Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And then we in Hamilton, a lot of people might not know this. We got stuck, or not stuck, but all the orphans uh, from all the other locations that were closed went to Hamilton. So Hamilton has, you know, carries all the, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, baggage um, from other works that close down. So that's why we have 9,000 retirees. So our needs are are a little bit different than others. Plus, you know, on top of that, for one of our priorities, which is jobs, we're down to 500 jobs or just slightly over 500 jobs with, you know, pretty good potential moving forward to have more jobs on on the Hamilton lands so you know we see some pretty positive things on the outlook so you know saying that and you know in the monitors report as well it was reported that the company had 237 million cash on hand so you're not talking about a company that's on its death death doorstop right it, we're talking about a viable company that's well positioned for the future uh, you know and and so I think Probably a lot of the the people that are listening today are probably saying, "Well, if they have so much money, cash on hand, why aren't the benefits being paid?" So you know, and, and that's a good question. A, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and and by the way, I, just to be clear on this, when I talked to Bill Ferguson about this, and I'm sure you heard the conversation anyway, Gary. But for the listeners who didn't, uh, he was also quite clear that he said, "Look, you know, those three things that you've just talked about here—the jobs, pensions, and benefits—have yet to be resolved." But uh, but he wanted to give some indication that you know there's some some hope here to move forward and try to get some things done, uh, and he mentioned that he would had some discussions with uh, with uh, Bedrock about this. Have you been down sat down at the table with these guys yet? Yeah, like we've had we've had ongoing discussions with Bedrock, uh, you know, and 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 because this is 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 you know the CCAA, it's it's such a complex process. I think it's 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 interesting for people to to keep in mind that. Normally, we would we would bargain with uh, the company, 
But in this particular case, like we're, we've dealt with uh, the different investors. So, you know, the company's doing quite well. We've been, you know, talking with Bedrock for some of these big issues. And, you know, I think there's still some, some ways. And, and, I mean, quite frankly, they're going to have to make a decision what they want to do um, because, you know, the, all the uh, economic indicators, like, you know, you've seen the pipelines approved. We, we've seen, you know, like with the, the Trump administration getting in, whether you, you agree with it or not, that's going to cause a lot of protectionism for probably steel. We can't produce enough steel in Canada and in, in like Canada and U.S. to supply the market. So the, that'll probably cause the prices of steel to go up, which has always been an issue, you know, for us and in the steel industry. Uh, interest rates, you know, look like they're going to inch up which is good for the pension plan. So all the indicators that you look at look extremely positive. So whoever owned the company, there's, there's an extremely good chance that they're going to make a, an awful lot of money. You know, and we'd look foolish if, if you know, we, we agreed to something that didn't take care of our, our, all our people. And down the road, these guys made billions of dollars. Um, you know, we'd look like what happened the last time. Well, this is what I'm <laughs> been there, done that, right? I mean, this is deja vu for you and Bill Ferguson all over again because I mean, it was just too, uh, not too many years ago that you went through this process, and uh, and I gotta let's cut let's cut right to the elephant in the room here. I mean, you know, U.S. Steel said all sorts of wonderful things to you guys back in those days too, and gave an awful lot of people hope, and it all fell through. Are you a little nervous about this process? Well, not I wouldn't say nervous, but what I would say that we were, you know, obviously we got our guard up because of of what we've experienced in the past. So, you know, and don't forget, you know, we've talked about this before. Is last time we were in the CCAA process, we met with a whole bunch of different bidders, and they were all very interested in owning us. Um, and then at the end of the day, uh, Stelco decided that they were going to keep the plant for itself. Um, you know, and that's another thing you have to look at in, in when we talk about the, the process this time, because it's, it's no matter who says what, you know, in the legal documents, which are public information, uh, the U.S. Steel Canada Board of Directors can decide any, to reject any bid, so they can decide, you know, basically who's going to get the company. Yeah, well, that goes back to your point about this being a very, very complicated process. You know, you've got to go to the judge, and then U.S. Steel, and then it's got to be okay by, uh, what is it, the Ontario Superior Court, and on and on it goes. There's a lot of hoops you guys have to go through here. But that doesn't go anywhere unless you've got some tentative agreement about these major issues. And, and both unions, of course, have expressed some concern about getting there. Uh, and we don't even know, at least I haven't heard anything at, at this point, Gary, about Bedrock's position uh, when it comes to uh, those two major, well, all three of the jobs, the jobs issue, obviously, but pensions and benefits. Do you get any sense in the conversations you've had with them that they are willing to take on that that that, that part of it? Because some of the companies and some of the uh, bidders on this said, well, we'll take it, but we're not going to do anything about the pensions and benefits. That's not going to be our problem. Are these guys open to talking about this? Well, we're talking about it, and they probably, you know, like we're talking about these issues, and, and I think they understand what our position is. And as I said, you know, they're going to have to make a decision on that. So, like, you know, like what I'm saying is the ball's in their court. Um, because, you know, we did have people that were interested that were willing to take on those obligations. 
Absolutely, but the court wouldn't even allow or entertain their well, bid. Well, it was, it, was, it was more, as I said earlier, it was more the U.S. Steel Canada, the company. Yeah, so here's the problem then. Uh, if these guys say no, uh, you know, we're not even going to touch that. That's going to, you know, sully the deal as far as we're concerned. Is that a deal breaker as far as you're concerned? Well, it's it's that then that's what what you know I I don't like to comment just solely on that. That's a decision that you know we take back and talk about our executive and we we talk about these things and decide to, how to move forward, right? Um, you know, if if they give us a absolute final decision, um, then you know we'll have to deal with it. Obviously, like I said, from all the indicators that that we're looking at for how good things are going to be. You know, we got to weigh those up against, uh, you know, what what the, their position will be. And so there's a lot of things to consider uh, before you take a final position, right? We obviously, you know, don't think that's a solution for anyone. And, you know, like you've heard me say it several times that, you know, that these the workers earned these benefits and, and we think they deserve them. And, you know, it's not like, you know, they didn't put put up with working in very hazardous condition, working shifts. And, and so, you know, that this comes, uh, you know, with a company, as I said, with so much money. So all those, all those things need to be considered. Well, sure. And, and anybody who's worked for a living understands that, especially in the kind of work that you guys did for many, many years. That, that pension and those benefits, that's the light at the end of the tunnel for you, you know, to know that, okay, there's going to be something there for me at the end of the day to look after us in, in, you know, in your retirement years. And obviously you guys have had the rug pulled out from under you right now, and I would think that's got to be job one to get that reinstated. Yeah, obviously it's, it's on the top of the agenda. The other thing that, you know, I'll have to mention is, is you know, it's very disappointing of the provincial government, um, you know, the position they're taking, uh, because the way a lot, of, a lot of us look at it is that the government gave the 10-year regulation to so the pension plan would be paid off at the end of 2015. So I'll just use this a little analogy. So if, you know, if a lot of your, the people that are listening, if they went in to invest money and they invested their own money and, and at the end, at, and at the end of 2015, they were have, supposed to have a certain amount. If they had a lot less than that, would they not blame the people that had promised them that they were going to make that much? And, and wouldn't they consider that was their fault? You know, and, and so then when it's moving forward, you can't place the blame on the investor for doing that. And, and that's what they're trying, the Ontario government's trying to do to our pensioners, right? Trying to put the blame onto us and try to weasel out of what their commitment is. Gary, I understand that there are some things that you can't talk about under the cloak of confidentiality uh, in these negotiations. But some time ago, uh, the, the uh, aforementioned provincial government, uh, Finance Minister Charles Souza in particular, announced that they had reached a memorandum of an agreement, uh, agreement rather, with Bedrock about this sort of thing. Do you have any idea at all what kind of a deal they struck between the province and Bedrock and, and what that implies? Because obviously, you know, the, the pension plan would come in uh, uh, somewhere in that plan, you would think. Uh, because the provincial government's got that contingency fund, and I don't know if they want to dip into that. They certainly don't seem to have enough money to pay that off. But you got to wonder if there's been some side deal that's already been made here. Well, that's more or less what I was, what I was referring to was, was, you know, the deal that the province wants to have for the pension plan. It, it's, it's very disappointing. Um, you know, at this point, 
you know, it's not finalized. So, you know, if I started to talk about it, it it's so complex and confusing to people. You know, it would just leave people with hundreds of questions and, uh, you know, it wouldn't be, it would be a huge disservice for me, uh, you know, to start bringing up some of these issues. Well, and I don't want to put you in a precarious position here where, where, where you know, the negotiations are going to be, you know, in, in jeopardy because of something that somebody says. And I, But at the same token, I mean, there was a, a feeling, I think, among a lot of us when we heard that announcement from the provincial government saying, you know, they've got this memorandum of agreement with Bedrock that uh, that they had your back. And uh, that looks like, you know, hey, we, I, and it's starting to sound more and more with each passing day now as if that's not the case. Well, they covered their own backs. That's the way I put it. So, so <laughs> like, the province got a, a good deal for themselves. U.S. Steel looked after their cells. You know, and now what it's come down to is, is the people that, that work at the work at Stelco and, and worked at Stelco for many years are the ones that they want to pay the price. And, and uh, you know, that's not the way we view things. So, um, you know, they, they're kind of trying to get everyone else to, you know, to get what they want and then to jam us, for lack of a better term. Yeah, but you guys have already been paying the price. Exactly. So do you feel now that you've got this extension to March of next year, that that's enough time to try to iron some of these issues out? I mean, are they willing to talk? Do you feel as if... And the problem here is you're probably not going to get a whole lot of cooperation from U.S. Steel in this situation. Uh, it looks as if the people at Bedrock are going to have to be the ones you rely on here to try to get some resolution. Yeah, so, I mean, it'd be only purely speculation for me to say it depends. Like, it, it, it's, it's up to them, really, to, for what they're going to do and, and, you know, whether the and the province, right? So they'll have to... Look, view, look at what they what they are willing to do, and and decide whether you know they they want to do it or whether they want to pass it on to someone else. Are you confident at this stage? Well, I, I'm I'm confident in the sense that that I think we got a very viable business both at Lake Erie and in Hamilton, and and you know we didn't talk about the future of the Hamilton lands, which you know was in the paper yesterday. Yeah. Uh, you know with the. Uh, um, Mr. Norton in the economic development for the city. So, you know, we have to also talk with the city and, and you know, I'm in the process of setting that up as well. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. What is going on with the Claremont Access? Uh, it's right in the center of the city, of course. It's been closed for some time now. Uh, they're trying to repair that, and apparently there was a setback yesterday. I uh, drove up there yesterday on the way. You can't drive down, obviously, because it's closed, but uh, I drove up the uh, the Claremont yesterday, and uh, it's a mess. Dan McKinnon is the uh, manager of public works for the city of Hamilton. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us an update on this. Good morning, Dan. How are you doing today? Morning, Bill. I'm well. How are you? I mean, other than that, how are you doing today? <laughs> oh, there's always something to keep us busy here. Well, this has been an ongoing headache for some time, ever since we had the collapse a couple of years ago and the wall gave way and, uh, you know, the... The idea of what we're going to do, and then there's the discussion about bike lanes. What what happened a couple of days ago to actually close this whole thing down? Well, we had an operations crew working there last Friday to just uh, cut down some of the vegetation. And uh, while they were doing that work, they observed some uh, what looked like a failure in a small area of one of the panels. So over the weekend, we brought in uh, an expert to have a look at that and develop a plan to deal with that. Um, the plan was supposed to be executed yesterday. And uh, when the uh, crew came in to actually start removing the panels, uh, they noticed they observed some movement and, and heard some noises that made them feel uncomfortable. 
uh, as far as even just being on the slope. So we had to we had to get the crew off the uh, side of the escarpment. So now we're reevaluating. I guess you know one of the challenges we have with this. It's kind of a unique system. These bin walls and they don't necessarily hold back the escarpment face, but what they do is they they um, they mitigate the amount of erosion that happens there. So. We have the condition of the bin walls themselves, the steel structure, but we also have a, a dynamic situation happening behind it in that we have, you know, the freeze-thaw cycle of, of water being uh, emerging from the rock face, and we also have vegetation growing there, so we have tree roots that are moving. And um, so it, it's, just a, it's just kind of a, a dynamic situation. So we didn't want to take any chances. We're going to be reevaluating it over the next few days and uh, determining whether or not we need to have a, a kind of a long-term closure. So... Uh, recognizing that that's having a, a pretty dramatic impact on uh, traffic congestion in the city, we've uh, redone some of the lights at the uh, the top and bottom of some of the apartment uh, crossings, and um, we think that that's helping with throughput throughput at those locations. So we think we're seeing some benefits from that. But we're also looking at a design for if this is going to be a longer term closure, uh, whether or not we can open up a, a downbound lane on the other side of the road where the where the upbound lanes are. So. We're, uh, we're 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 still uh, analyzing what's going on there to determine how long this is going to be. Uh, we're going to be living with this. What the initial concern though was was it similar to? Were you afraid you were going to get something like the mudslide that that caused the official that wall to break down a few years ago too, or is it something more dramatic than that? Well, that, that's the problem. We don't know at this point. So, uh-huh. uh, and, and we want to do more of a comprehensive uh, view of it. And, and this is the kind of thing that. It's not exactly A plus B equals C. Um, there's a lot of judgment involved when the experts take a look at that. And, and because of the complexity of the wall and kind of the dynamic situation behind it, we want to make sure that they have some time to do a thoughtful analysis before we ever consider reopening those lanes. This uh, this is the good news, bad news situation. I mean, we have an escarpment, and it's lovely, and we love it. Uh, I've lived on top of it for most of my life, uh, but uh, and we drive along there. But, I mean, it, there there are challenges to this. I mean, we, even with the other accesses, too, it's great to say, well, that's all carved out of stone. But, you know, we had problems on the Sherman access some years ago, too, with stones starting to fall, and that can be a bit of a problem. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember as a kid, I, I, I've spent my whole life in Hamilton, I remember uh, – going down the Sherman access as a kid, and we used to see those uh, watch for falling rock signs. Yeah, and, uh, that's right. That's, that's really what the, the bin walls were installed to do. It's, they're, like, again, they're not holding back the face. They're just kind of uh, uh, trying to mitigate the opportunity for, for debris to fall and roll down the hill. So, um, you know, taming the, uh, the escarpment seemed like a novel idea back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it becomes an expensive proposition when you have to start to repair and replace some of those structures that we put in place. So we're going to have to look at a, uh, maybe a design going forward where we, we, we're kind of working more in harmony with nature than trying to harness it. So. Well, and the Claremont access presents some unique challenges that some of the other uh, you know, mountain accesses don't, obviously, because, as you say, it's not just rock face. There's, there's a lot of dirt and tree roots, et cetera, there. And uh, now that they've been exposed, as I say, I drove up there yesterday. You get a little idea, Dan, as to what's going on behind that uh, that wall that's been constructed there. There's a, there's a lot of ground movement movement there, and and anybody that lived in an older neighborhood and of course has has mature trees around there knows that as those roots continue to expand, I mean they can wrap themselves around infrastructure and and cause some severe damage. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually interesting uh, from my perspective anyway to just to just think about the. Uh, the uh, challenges and the cost associated with tree roots throughout the city, whether it's 
uh, people's sewers, whether it's people's driveways, sidewalks, and certainly this is an extreme example of how tree roots can be part of a bigger problem. And uh, uh, that's one of the things we're going to have to consider when we look at what the final solution is going to be here. If, and I'm not suggesting the solution here is removal of some of the trees, but if that were to be the case, is is that simple, easily done, or do you have to deal with the Niagara Scarpet Commission? I mean, the, I, I just get the feeling that there's probably a couple more steps here that maybe most of us may not be aware of. Yeah, no question. We'll have to consult with them. Uh, they they have jurisdiction over the escarpment face, and uh, you know I think they'd be uh, understanding if we find ourselves in an emergency situation there. I mean, we're allowed to do maintenance uh, to a certain extent, but if we're going to start making dramatic changes, we'd have to definitely have to do that in consultation with them. Is there any concern about uh, about further erosion and, and danger? I mean, there are people who live above there too. There's some beautiful old houses right up there. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a concern, and, and that's why we, we don't want to be in a hurry when we do this evaluation. We want to make sure that uh, whatever short-term and longer-term plans, uh, they're, they're well thought out, and, uh, and we certainly have to consider uh, the people on top of the hill as well because uh, we don't know what the impacts might be for them uh, depending on what kind of a plan we come up with. Well, I mean, you know, that's that's nature. I mean, you know, we, I can remember even the couple of years when I lived in Toronto, I mean, they had some serious concerns about some of the ravines housing, and and I know you had that. It was some of the places over by the old railway uh, tracks, too, uh, over in the uh, the west end of the city where there's erosion, and all of a sudden somebody's backyard that used to be 40 feet long is now 35 feet long, and there's a concern about uh, public safety, really, when it comes into this. So this is, this is a pretty complex situation you're dealing with. Yeah, it sure is. And, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I can think about images that you see on TV when you see these big storms hit the coastal areas and you see the type of erosion that can happen, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the Atlantic coastline when they have uh, hurricanes and that kind of thing. Well, this is kind of the same thing. We have these large faces that are eroding, whether it's a ravine or the escarpment face, and it's something that we're, uh, you know, we've been fortunate for a long period of time that we've had these systems in place that seem to do the trick, but they don't last forever. And, uh, so it's, it's just, you know, some of the some of the challenges that we constantly have to be monitoring and evaluating. Well, I remember when that was constructed. and Because and, uh, I remember the way that road used to be with the hairpin turn onto the Jolly Cat. And it was a pretty messy situation for a lot of years. And, and obviously something had to be done. But when the city staff back in those days, Dan, completed this, uh, it was considered state-of-the-art stuff, this new kind of wall structure that was going to add a lot more safety. And, and, and it did for many, many years. Uh, but now it looks as if you're going to have to find a, an alternative plan. Uh, one of the jobs, obviously, that you've got in public works is to make sure that you guys are up to speed on the state of the art as to what other people are doing there. Is there a better way to do it than what we've been doing it for for the last couple of years? Um, the answer is probably, the simple answer would be yes. Um, I, I know from my own experience, the, the, the more you try, and I said it earlier, the more you try to work in harmony with nature, uh, the more successful you're going to be. Um, the fact that we, you know, cut into the escarpment face to put the roadways in there and try to hold it back with steel, probably not as harmonious with nature as we could have been. And I think that's part of the ingenuity gap that we're dealing with from decisions that were made 50, 60, 70 years ago around large infrastructure projects like this. The first thing is they don't last forever. And the second one is when you're, when, you know, as I said, when you're kind of going against nature, um, I think we need to to take a little different approach to it. So I, I'm certain once we get the right people on site there, we'll be able to come up with a longer-term plan uh, that, that will be more sustainable and hopefully less costly. Uh, the bigger issue now is what are we going to do in the short term? Well, the Red Hill, I think, is a classic example of that, where you actually worked with the topography and with nature and with the creek itself to try to design the road 
Uh, the, I know the initial designs weren't like that at all, and you've had to do some modifications. Is is that on the table right now, that there might have to be some modifications to the road, or you're just going to have to deal with what you've got? I, I think we have to be open-minded to, uh, to to anything, any kind of ideas that we might have going forward. Certainly we see the the value that that access provides to the city. Um, so I think maintaining it is going to be an absolute priority. I don't think we can live without it. So um, we're, we're going to have to uh, just try to be as open-minded as we can and look at every option we can. Uh, getting into another department, but I know you guys do talk to each other. Uh, you, you mentioned traffic a few minutes ago. Uh, I, we all remember just a couple of years ago when the Queen Street Hill was closed uh, for a protracted amount of time, obviously, because you ran into some problems in some of the reconstruction and the work that had to go on there. Uh, and that caused an awful lot of headache for a lot of people, especially in the West End, obviously. Uh, what uh, Compare the two. I mean, does the Claremont carry more cars on a daily basis than, than the Queen Street Hill or the Jolly Cat? I mean, where where are they in that in that pecking order of the mountain accesses? Um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. I, my guess would be the Claremont might carry a bit more traffic than the Queen, uh, the Queen Street Hill just because it's two lane and uh, um, it's kind of in the center of the mountain. I know periodically I come down the Queen Street Hill and there's, there's no question it gets a lot of volume every day probably because people uh, can get to uh, a lot of the employment areas on the west end there quicker and the west uh, lower end of the city. Um, yeah, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, I think every one of the accesses is vitally important, so we're always going to have to... Uh, have an eye to maintaining them, and, and uh, but but both of both of those examples, I think, uh, demonstrate in a, in, a, in a very you know strong way that if we're trying to use the the escarpment for uh, access to the lower city, and it's it's a kind of a living, breathing thing that we have to manage all the time because it's constantly moving. Where's the traffic going now? This, this has been closed for a few days now, and probably going to be a few more days at least. Yeah, well, uh, people are finding their own way to get around it. I was talking to a friend of mine last night. He said uh, he lives on the Central Mountain. He's actually going out the east end of the link, coming down the Red Hill and coming back in along uh, Burlington Street. He found that to be the fastest way. So people will always find um, a way to get around it. But uh, I think one of the things that we did today that we're already seeing some significant benefit from is just the way that we're timing the uh, the traffic lights at the top and the bottom of the hill. Uh, the throughput that we're being able to uh, create there in the morning rush is uh, is, is starting to benefit that, so we're not seeing as much congestion. That may be little, uh, um, um, you know, sympathy for people who are actually getting caught in it, but we are seeing some uh, some improvement on that today. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned I drove up there yesterday, but that was one o'clock in the afternoon, and there's not usually a whole lot of traffic there. But uh, and and I'm in here at, at seven o'clock in the morning, so I don't see the the rush there. But I have my, my sympathies go out to the people that are stuck in that as well. How would you characterize what you're dealing with right now? I mean, it looks like hell, frankly, the way things are. But I know that you guys are developing a plan for this. Is is this a crisis situation? Is this work that has to be absolutely positively done no matter what? Uh, well, I think we're going to know better in the next day or two. Um, you know, the, the the concern that I had when, when, you know, when I made the decision about extending the closure was we had this event four years ago. We've had, we've made some observations now. I'd much rather deal with this situation proactively than, than, God forbid, having a panel come down while the road is open. So um, we, we want to take some time here and make sure we get it right because, uh, you know, the consequences of getting it wrong and trying to reopen those lanes, just, it's just not worth it. Well, that's what I was thinking as I was looking at what was going on there yesterday. Uh, you had the one from 2012, and then, of course, you've got this incident that occurred just a couple of days ago. And I'm getting up near the top of the access there, and I figure, okay, those panels and that part of the wall is still in place although it's pretty well rusted out now but i mean it's still there you got to wonder if maybe the course best course of action right now is to just okay we just got to replace the whole thing 
because there's no sense in doing it piecemeal because you're right, you're just waiting for the next accident to happen. Yeah, you know, we uh, we always take a precautionary approach, and I think your listeners would understand that. But uh, but but also we don't want to you know we, we don't want to be throwing good money after bad either. We don't want to start patching a wall that, after careful reflection, we might decide we want to go in a different direction. So that's the thing we're we're trying to do. We're trying to balance the immediacy of the issue with what the long-term costs are going to be to solve it as well. So. Uh, Sometimes you just need some time to think that through clearly. Well, here we go, though. I mean, we're, as you know, getting into the budget discussions at the city right now, too. i got to figure that there's no budget for this right now. This is not a funded project. So what happens in a situation like that, Dan? Well, typically, when you, when you have some kind of an event like this that's going to cost a lot of money, that's, that's what the city has reserves for. Um, and um, depending on what we're looking at here, we probably have to access the reserves, but that would be a decision that we'd go through council for. Uh, but that, that's the whole point of having reserves is that rainy day fund for things that you're not necessarily planning on but are going to cost you a lot of money. Now you say you're going to bring some folks in to have a look around here. Uh, do, do they have a blank check here to come up with suggestions or recommendations? I mean, can they get this thing done in pretty short order? Because it sounds to me as if right now, it's the, the the opinion seems to be that maybe we're just going to have to, to start all over again and, and get this thing done and in a different manner. I, I think our objective right now is to get to, to remove any of the, the uh, components of the wall that have failed, not to necessarily start building new ones. Uh, we want to get rid of uh, the, the, the sections of the wall that have failed. We want to stabilize the slope as much as possible, and then that will allow us to come up with this comprehensive, more uh, long-term plan. But just in, with the objective of getting um, of stabilizing the slope and, and removing the, the panels that have failed, that in itself is going to take some effort. And um, as you can imagine, trying to get up there and get close to the uh, to this uh, this infrastructure is just dangerous on its own. We've got some areas where there's some overhanging rock now. There's a lot of overburden at the higher elevations that that looks pretty precarious. So putting human beings up there is, is, is very kind of difficult right now. So uh, we're going to have to go slow so that we can get in there in a safe way and make sure that we do a, a, you know, a, a complete inspection. Dan, we're heading, it's in December now. This is, this is hardly construction season. How much of this work can you actually do through the winter months? Well, it, we're, we are, we're at the mercy of the weather. There's no question. This is probably the, you know, might be almost the worst time of year for this to happen. Uh, it would have been much nicer if it was happening in June when it was sunny and dry. Uh, but we'll deal with it. I mean, um, you know, these situations come up, and, and the, the the folks who respond to these types of things are pretty resilient and they're pretty creative. So we'll we'll figure it out. But uh, in the short term, here we just need some time to make sure that that we've uh, we can do a good job. Your comment earlier about a blank check. Check. I don't think we'd say we have a blank check. I would say we have a blank canvas on on how we're going to uh, <laughs> to go about fixing this. As far as writing the check, we have to be very very careful how we do this because. Uh, uh, as you're likely aware, the, the, the city's got some unusual budget uh, constraints uh, facing us right now. Will for the next couple of years, so we, have, and, and that's why you have to take your time and think through so that you're just not throwing good money after bad. You gotta, you gotta do it in a very careful way. So it sounds as if what we may be faced here is maybe a kind of a band-aid solution to get you through these these winter months, and then maybe a longer term plan for for next year. That's exactly what we're doing. We want to find out what we can do in the short term so that we can stabilize things and possibly reopen the lanes and get traffic back to normal. But over the longer term, we do have to come up with a plan because it's uh, it, it's not like this isn't going to happen again if we just kind of forget about it. So, If you go for that plan of, of, of having one downbound lane, uh, that's probably going to require you to move some of those concrete barriers that are up on the road now. 
Yeah, I, I know the initial plan we were looking at was maybe removing some of the concrete barrier wall uh, that divides the upbound from the downbound lanes just on the east side of the Jolly Cut Bridge. Um, and then that way we could swing people back over so that they can get back onto uh, the Claremont as they approach uh, King Street. Uh, but our traffic guys are analyzing that to make sure we can do that in a safe way. And um, that, that plan might be something that we want to have in our back pocket regardless because if, uh, if, if we're going to do a bit of a dance with this situation over the next couple of years, um, always having that opportunity to move traffic over there might be a luxury that we need to have going forward. What's the time frame on this? Is, can we anticipate that maybe something could be open and, and, and have traffic going up and down by next week, maybe a week after? When? Uh, I'm hopeful that we could do something by next week. Um, I'm going to be meeting on site with our staff uh, later on this afternoon to try to get an update on, on how the inspection and, the, and the development of the plan is going. But uh, as far as, with respect to the wall, but as far as the design and the implementation of the downbound lane on the opposite side of the barrier wall there, I think our guys are... Uh, they're pretty uh, pretty quick to put this stuff together. So I think if we decide that we're going to we're going to do that in order to maintain traffic, I'm hoping that early next week we can have that in place. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML. Ontario Auditor General Bonnie Lissick issued her annual report on government spending here in the province of Ontario with the provincial government specifically, of course. Looking at a number of different areas right now, and if uh, you're a, a taxpayer who's looking for uh, government efficiency, uh, <laughs> well, this meets an awful lot like a Stephen King novel, I suppose. Uh, we are so pleased to welcome, though, the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, to the Bill Keller Show here on CHML. Bonnie, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for doing this, too. This is a, a, a burdensome job. It takes an awful lot of work with you and your staff to get to, to some of these numbers. Uh, but they're very important numbers, and there's so many different areas here that uh, that we can talk about here. Because uh, what we're hearing, of course, is is the government's uh, idea when we hear a think of a throne speech or things of this nature. But you're the one that actually drills down and says, "Okay, just how efficient is the money that's being spent here?" And there's there's a lot of areas of concern here, aren't there? Uh, you know, every year we we look at different areas, and and this year's no different. And yeah, we highlighted some areas where we think there's there's obviously room for some improvement. Well, let's talk about some of them, and uh, I'll begin with the cap and trade because the energy programs of the government are, are front and center right now. There's hydro rates certainly, but uh, the way to deal with uh, the environment and with issues like this, uh, the, the government's announced their cap and trade program with some pretty lofty goals and some pretty confident uh, quotes and, 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 and ideas from some of the government ministers involved in this, Bonnie, that uh, this is going to work just fine and it's going to make us a leader in the environment. Uh, according to what you wrote in the report, this is going to cost us a lot of money. Yeah, we actually started doing this audit way before Paris as a collaborative audit with all the auditor general's offices across Canada. So the cap and trade came up while we were in the midst of doing the audit. Um, we looked at it. Uh, we looked at the analysis that was commissioned by the ministry that indicated there'd be about 18.7 megatons of emission reductions required to meet Ontario's 2020 target. Uh, what, what we noticed is that about 3.8 megatons are expected to be um, you know, experienced in Ontario. The remaining 14.9 are forecast to occur in Quebec and California, which is, which is part of the Paris Accord. We're, we're just pointing out that in order to count those emission savings in other places like Quebec and California, um, it's important that the, uh, the federal government have an agreement with the United States to enable that counting, as well as the federal requirement for how emissions are tracked is different than including these emissions. 
Plus, um, you know, we, we wanted in the report to highlight it's really important to make sure that emissions can be attributable to Ontario. The government has another plan for about 9.83 megatons in savings from a, another uh, list of options. We looked at that and we said they needed more support. So at the end of the day, what we're saying is, you know, you make sure your, your numbers and calculations are right because there's a big impact on taxpayers at the end of the day and uh, make sure that your plans have good plans behind them and that they're supportable and then do some public reporting on your plan plus your, you know, how you're going to achieve it. There's a, a, a current theme, by the way, I can go right through, there's a thread, a common thread that, uh, that it, and we talked about this last year in your report as well, uh, this is not to embarrass governments, this is not to say don't do this program, this is really a matter of spending money and making sure there's a return on the money that's being spent here. That's correct. I mean, you know, I think I think we all, you know, think climate change and dealing with it is is appropriate. It's just making sure that at the end of the day, what Ontarians have to contribute toward um, addressing this sort of world initiative is fair and reasonable and is understood by everybody very clearly. Well, let's talk about some of the other areas then, too. Uh, I want to get into road construction. Now, there's a lot of that going around these days, too, and this concern, and, and we've seen this happen in the past with, as a matter of fact, we had an issue locally here, Bonnie, some months ago with some substandard construction that was done at the municipal level, and and you uncovered some of that with, uh, with, with the provincial government money that's being spent on the Ministry of Transportation as well. Yeah, I think our main concern there was that the Ministry of Transportation hadn't fully implemented two complete tests that would identify asphalt before it's laid, whether or not it will crack once it's laid. And as a result uh, of not implementing those two two tests, uh, way back in 2012, the pavement on some of the major highways has cracked prematurely and the provinces had to uh, pay for again repaving or fixing those cracks. So we think they need to implement both tests on all highways in order to make sure that taxpayers don't have to pay for the repair of those highways. Plus, there's a a sampling of a highway once it's laid, and right now contractors control that sampling process, and we think the ministry needs to take charge of it. Well, the numbers here are rather staggering, too. Uh, Paving contracts worth $143 million, and uh, taxpayers said to spend another $23 million to fix some of those roads. The understanding I had, uh, talking to somebody who knows a little bit about road construction uh, when I saw these numbers yesterday, was that when you do a road like that, you're expecting 10 to 15 years before you have to go back and fix it. And many of the ones that you uncovered were after only three years. Oh, that, that's correct. Um, and that was just a, a sample that we had identified. Um, there were roads that were supposed to last 15 years that were prematurely cracking uh, within three years. And And you also... <laughs> I, I, I'm, this is a head-scratcher, because we find and hear these stories time and time and time again in government bureaucracy, where despite the fact that there were some, say, less than perfect uh, you know, contracting contracts handed out and, and less than perfect work done, uh, bonuses were still paid. I, I, I'm, I'm bog- it boggles the imagination that that would still go on in government, but it does. Yeah, up in, uh, they tracked it up until 2012, and so it was about $8 billion. Uh, my staff just pulled invoices to see whether bonus was written on them after that, and, and it was. And so there are bonuses that are paid um, uh, for laying the uh, asphalt. 
I want to get into healthcare because that's obviously you talk to anybody in government and you talk to anybody around election time. What's the number one issue? It's always healthcare, and and we know that we have challenges with the Ontario healthcare system. And we've talked to some of the the CEOs of the hospitals around the Hamilton area over the last couple of years, and 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 they talk about lack of government funding, and they talk about uh, you know being challenged, of course, and trying to find more efficient ways to do things. Yet your report this year, Bonnie, when it comes to the healthcare aspect of this. Is it, it's almost like it's it's deja vu all over again. We're talking about wait times. We're talking about uh, inefficiency in the medical professions. We're talking about lack of facilities in the uh, larger continuum of healthcare, and not just primary care, but things like long-term care facilities. And they're just, they're not catching up. I mean, they they talk the talk, but they don't seem to be putting the money in the proper resources. I, I mean, I think the thing is, people are trying when they are running these hospitals and board members, they are trying to do their best. There are sort of systemic issues that are, you know, somewhat overwhelming um, in addressing. And and so, you know, the one area that you did mention and that constantly gets raised is the fact that a lot of people, I think we highlighted March 31st this year, there was about 4,000 people in hospital beds that um, that really don't require sort of intensive care or acute care, and there's just nowhere the placement for them is not there. So they need to either go into long-term care homes, they're waiting for home care, or they need accommodation because maybe a mental health illness in other institutions, and and that's sort of the bottleneck that backs itself up and affects maybe that one in ten person that needs to get an a, a acute bed or um, uh, an intensive care unit bed that comes through emergency. And so that, that is an issue that still needs to be addressed. I think, you know, obviously they're, they're trying to address it, but, um, you know, the fact is uh, it's still there. And, and as you mentioned, it's almost a reverse domino effect. There aren't enough long-term care beds, so there are people that are in hospitals that shouldn't be there and should be in long-term care facilities. And while that's going on, that person downstairs in emergency that needs to be admitted doesn't have a bed because of all the other things that are going on in other parts of the system. That's correct. We also did a review of an, an audit of the uh, four specialty psychiatric hospitals in Ontario where people are admitted for mental illnesses, and we found the same thing there. There are some beds in those hospitals as well that are occupied by persons that would be better better served really outside the hospital. The other thing about um, you know bed utilization in hospitals, people often think it's the best thing is to have a family member in the hospital. Actually, there is a higher rate of um, sepsis uh, not, I'm sorry, not sepsis, um, of catching something, you know, uh, a different, a different uh, virus if somebody stays in the hospital. Plus, we did find, you know, in terms of uh, the more senior people, that it, they more frequently have falls in a hospital than they would if they were in a long-term care home. What about uh, wait times when it comes to surgery? So that's, that's always been a long concern for many, many people. Uh, the government over the years, not just this past year, but over the years, has, has told us that they're investing more in, in things like joint replacement surgeries and, and, and things of this nature for, for our aging population. Are, are they shortening those wait times? Um, there are, you know, it's so dependent on what type of surgery there is. I mean, I think the one key point in our report is, you know, there's two groupings of surgery. There's emergency surgeries and there's these elective surgeries. And there's only so much operating time. And the emergency surgeries are competing with the um, elective surgeries. And so the hospitals really aren't meeting their targets in getting those more, you know, more um, immediate needs served as quick as the elective because of the, um, 
the way the uh, the handling of the operating room timeline is done. So we recommended that that be looked at a little closer, and um, that uh, perhaps you know the the operating rooms aren't really open. There's the odd emergency operating room that's open, but the operating rooms aren't open on the weekends or holidays or. And so, you know, maybe it's time to, to look at that for um, optimizing utilization and for trying to address the waiting list, wait list. But obviously it all costs money. Well, sure, that's a staffing situation, isn't it? But I, And I know that in some instances there are uh, elements in the private sector that are trying to take that over. I know somebody that just went and had an MRI done at a private clinic uh, that was covered by OHIP, as a matter of fact. But that I was told that this MRI clinic runs 24 hours a day. Uh, to try to catch up with the backload. Hospitals, as you say, mostly you know, by 6 o'clock at night, they're not using that stuff very much, are they? Um, you know, it, it, this is specifically uh, uh, on the emergency rooms. Yeah. In terms of other services, I, I can't comment on the MRI use right now. I, I would be guessing. Let me ask you about two of the more contentious programs that the government has been involved in. Uh, one is the e-health program. Uh, the other is Orange Ambulance. And much maligned, of course, because we were told about government bureaucracy and bloated bureaucracies and overspending and double billing by some of the administrators, etc. cetera. Uh, what I find frustrating about the, the criticism, Bonnie, is that I think both programs are very worthwhile. They don't seem to be managed very well. Are they getting that under control? You know, you're, you're right in saying they're important. I mean, e-health is really important. And, um, you know, down the road for each of us to have our own electronic patient record where it tracks our medical history, I, I think is so significant and, and would benefit us all. But I, our point here is it's, you know, 14 years, $8 billion has been spent. There hasn't been sort of an overall cradle-to-grave strategy or budget, and we think they still need that in order to get this right to completion. Um, they also need to be a little bit more prescriptive in terms of the software and hardware utilized by people in the in the health care system so that there's compatibility so that the system can operate more smoothly and there has to be a more require more a more stronger requirement for patients information to actually get into the system so that you know it can be shared when appropriate and where needed so in terms of e-health you know those are our recommendations when we went it, back, it sounds like as if the li- sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing in that bureaucracy. I think the mandate and the responsibilities of eHealth were more contained to um, a certain number of projects. So we're saying, you know, you've got to sit back and you've got to look at the whole thing because it's all got to work together. It doesn't matter if one project is successful. They all have to work together to be compatible to generate an electronic health record by, by individual. I'm sorry, and you were going to mention Orange? Uh, Orange, um, we went back and, and just followed up to see what was happening at Orange. And, and generally, you know, they have implemented um, a lot of the recommendations that were made through our original audit. And uh, we did follow up on the Public Accounts Committee of uh, the legislature had held a number of hearings on Orange. And they put out a couple reports and they had, you know, articulated some of their concerns. And we followed up on where those were sitting with Orange. And they have been quite active in addressing it. I mean, I think they've had a lot of public attention placed on them. And and that helps um, as well in in some instances. But they are making progress. I just got a little bit of time left. I want to mention one other uh, entity that's getting an awful lot of attention these days. And that's Metrolinx because of the uh, government's uh, commitment, of course, to, to public transit. And uh, Metrolinx has its hand in projects in Ottawa right now, Toronto, Hamilton, uh, KW, and, and 
uh, and Mississauga, and on and on it goes. Uh, there's always a concern when, when you know, agencies like this and entities like this start to grow that uh, that they're being managed properly. What have we found? Um, we think they, there's room for improvement in the way they hold their design consultants and contractors accountable for when the work that they're doing is late or is of poor quality. Um, we saw through their processes they do, you know, they do move to picking the lowest bid, but they're reawarding work to people that haven't done good work for them, and at some point. You have to say, you know, enough's enough, and uh, it's costing us too much money, and and there has to be some type of an exclusion, um, you know, contract um, uh, requirement. Um, They also, you know, the design consultants, um, if they don't design it right, the contractors then will charge you, you know, 20% on top of the original contract price uh, for the additions, and so that's very expensive. And so we think there's more work they need to do in tightening up their management over the designers and contractors. There is one other quick element I wanted to ask you about here. Governments obviously have their own public relations departments uh, that put out press releases about how wonderful their policies are and their projects are. Uh, And they're spending a lot more money this year than they did last year to try to promote their own projects, aren't they? Uh, In terms of government advertising? Yeah. yeah, The government's uh, pretty much doubled the amount that they've spent uh, this year compared to the previous year years. Um, We... uh, in the past, we've had the ability to look at ads for partisanship and whether the ad is providing useful information to taxpayers. And that uh, the act that governed that uh, was changed, and so we don't have the ability. Yeah, I got a problem with that. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're not. <laughs> I'm, too happy I'm about saying it, it for you, Bonnie. I'm saying it for you. Uh, that that's that seems to me to be a little heavy-handed and 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 self-centered, self-serving to be able to put a, a, a basically a restriction on the auditor general like that. Well, I think the difficulty is here. We are, you know, I think people assume that we're giving um, an opinion that it's nonpartisan. When at the end of the day, we're really giving a rubber stamp, and we're not able to um, refuse uh, an advertisement based on what we would see from, you know, the office's experience for the last 10 years of, of defining partisanship advertising. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.